0: Hi there, my fellow game devs, and welcome to the All Things Unity Podcast. My name is Ruben and I'll be your host. Alrighty then. In the previous episode we got up to chapter 13 of the Clean Code Book. And chapter 13 is the last chapter of the book I can meaningfully cover in a podcast format. The remaining chapters are all case studies with a lot of examples. And Uncle Bob shows you how to apply these practices uh, that you've learned in the book, uh, and by this podcast, of course. These things are just not easily explained with just audio, and just the in-depth coverage uh, of the Clean Code book ends at chapter 13. But if you are interested in the remaining chapters, please get the book and dive into it. And also, the previous episodes covered each chapter, so if you want to read along, uh, you can do that. It's not like a true audiobook or something, since I gave the content in the book my own spin and Yeah, try to relate it to a Unity 3D context where that uh, makes sense. And I've tried to come up with some tangible examples to explain many of the concepts that were discussed in the book. And in this episode, I'm going to try and wrap things up by diving into alternatives to clean code. I know that not everyone agrees with Uncle Bob. And as a matter of fact, I think many people do not agree with Uncle Bob because he's very prescriptive he can sometimes tell you in a pretty harsh way that you should do things his way or else you are not quote-unquote a professional. So I can understand that some people don't like that. But because of that, you should not ignore the advice he gives you. But still, there's a lot of pushback against uh, clean code and Uncle Bob. You may know someone who really dislikes the practices in the book, Or maybe you are that person. So to also speak to you and all these others that dislike the clean code practices, I promised to create an extra episode where I dove into alternatives to clean code. So for this podcast, we are going to start to look into three of them. There's probably more, but these are the ones that are recommended often and I have read myself over the past couple of years. So we're going to cover the Pragmatic Programmer by Andy Hunt and Dave Thomas. A Philosophy of Software Design by John R. Osterhout, and Code Complete by Steve McConnell. And I may have butchered some names there, but yeah, I'm sorry. But I've read all three of these books, and I think they are reasonable alternatives, or even a way to further augment to uh, clean code. And in the last episode, I said I wanted to cover all these books in a single podcast, but after having quickly reviewed the contents in the book again, I can say I will do at least three episodes where I dive into these books individually, since I just can't do the book or the author justice by only spending like 15 minutes on them. There's just too much awesome information in these books. So you can expect me to make at least three more episodes and maybe even more because Code Complete is a massive tome so in this chapter we are going to discuss the first five chapters of a philosophy of software design by john r austerhout and yeah it's an amazing book there are some real gems in here uh, you should keep in your mind when designing game systems and logic and software in general and i also quickly want to mention that I noticed that some of my previous episodes went vastly beyond the 45 minute mark. Um, and from now on, I'll try to keep them closer to 45 minutes since I don't want them to take that long. But yeah, let's continue with the alternatives to clean code. So let's start with the shortest one, a philosophy of software design by John R. Osterhout. He's a professor at Stanford University and he himself wrote this book based on a course he gives uh, and teaches there. This book is sort of a companion for the course and is rather short compared to other computer science books. But that's nice. Not each book needs to be a massive tone, right? Um, When I was in university, one of my professors said that It was a real art to write things down with as less words as you can, but still provide enough information to explain the concepts uh, you're writing about. So a short book is not necessarily a bad thing. And in this case, I can promise you, it's not a bad thing. This is a really great book. So let's have a look and discuss it as an alternative to clean code. There are some contradicting advice in here uh, compared to clean code, but yeah, let's find out. and see what they are. So let's quickly describe the preface of the book. Uh, In here, John makes the case that the most fundamental problem in computer science is problem decomposition. How to take a complex problem and divide it into pieces that can be solved independently. And he also says that many classes about programming are about writing code, writing loops, and object-oriented programming, but not about design. But this is where I might disagree, because, well, it depends. (laughs) Again, right, it always depends. Well, the the bachelor I did was mostly focused on software design. There's lots of requirement engineering, UML and architecture and design patterns. So I think it depends on what course you do at what uh, institution, so at what school. But I might agree with him that in most cases design is not taught properly and it's mostly about uh, yeah, writing code as he says. But okay, he wrote this book as a companion for the course he designed himself. It's called CS190 at Stanford, which he has given three times at the time of writing of this book. And he also notes that the book touches on topics that are rather high level or philosophical So it's a good idea to do some actual coding and try to apply these principles because most students have a hard time learning abstract concepts. When you code, you can apply things in concrete matters and you need to think uh, things through. And then there's also a nice concept in this book which she calls the red flags of software design. These are like little highlights in the books that provide truly valuable information. And he said in one of his talks, you can find it on YouTube, uh, and I'll put it in the show notes, that if you remember anything of this book, please remember the information in the red flag snippets. And I will point them out in the in the episode, so don't worry about that. Um, so the first chapter in the book that provides us with some information is chapter two, The Nature of Complexity. And he defines complexity as... Complexity is anything related to the structure of a software system that makes it hard to understand or modify the system. That's a pretty clear statement, I think. But it's also rather subjective, right? But luckily, he wrote down some symptoms of complexity as well. First, there is a change amplification, which says that a seemingly simple change requires changes in many places. (laughs) Right? If you have programmed for over like three weeks, you have probably uh, ran into this issue, right? Uh, well, next there is um, cognitive load, which refers to anything a developer needs to know in order to complete this task. So the higher the load, the more time you must invest to read, learn, and understand the code. And last, there are the unknown unknowns, which is that it is not clear which pieces of the code must be modified to complete a particular task. And I bet you will run into this problem when you start coding on some existing project um, that might be poorly designed. Even good projects can like show symptoms of this. And he says that complexity is often caused by two things, dependencies and obscurity. Andy defines a dependency as, when a given piece of code cannot be understood and modified in isolation, the code relates to some other code in some way. This is an interesting contrast to the practices in clean code, right? I mean, in clean code, we are encouraged to abstract as much as we can, and thus this might impact understandability on both sides of the spectrum, depending on how you look at it, of course if you abstract things out, you might need to read some other classes as well, which might increase your perception of complexity because you cannot change it in isolation. But on the other hand, if it's abstracted out, you do not have to read that code to change the things you are about to change. So it depends on how you look at this and yes, Uh, if there are concrete dependencies everywhere, then this point is perfectly valid. But if the dependencies are hidden away behind polymorphic interfaces, then it will most likely reduce complexity. And the second cause of complexity was obscurity, which occurs when important information is not obvious. The example he gives are bad variable names that do not provide enough information to act upon. Like a variable called time. Well, what do we know now? What does a variable called time tell you? And the last thing he states in this chapter is that complexity is incremental, which is certainly true. I mean, how many of you have started like a greenfield project, a new project, and you move very, very quickly in the beginning, but you start to slow down after a couple of sprints? And a sprint refers to uh, Agile or Scrum terminology. Agile is a software development methodology where you work in short iterations called sprints. So you should always do your absolute best to manage complexity in all the work you do because complexity can creep up on you. And next up is chapter three already. So it's called working code is not enough. And he has some nice things to say here. Um, He defines two different mindsets when it comes to programming, the tactical mind and the strategic mind. And in tactical programming, what most people do, uh, a programmer is focused to get things working uh, such as a feature or a bug fix. This seems totally reasonable, right? Because we want things to work, right? Well, it's rather short-sighted. If you only program tactically, you're trying to finish a task as quickly as possible. And as a result, you do not plan for the future since that's not a priority. And John says that if you program just tactically, you are trying to get things done as quickly as you can. And he thinks that this is the way systems become complicated. As he said in the previous chapter, Complexity is incremental, it accumulates in your game or your software and I agree with him. Complexity does accumulate due, due to badly implemented features or dirty bug fixes, like fix, not fixing the root problem but fixing its symptoms. And This is exactly why we are doing a couple of episodes of Clean Code and now this book A Philosophy of Software Design. And he finishes this section with a description of a person who takes the tactical mindset to the ultimate extreme. This is that person who can write code very, very fast, delivers something, quote unquote, working for every deadline. He never misses a single deadline. However, he leaves a path of destruction in his wake. And typically other engineers must clean up after him because he made a mess. And he is called the Tactical Tornado. And <laughs> I bet uh, it's this tornado that wrangled the spaghetti monster into a giant knotted ball. And a common thing, however, is that the technical Tornado is often praised by management because he or she can get things done way faster than anyone else. He might even get promoted faster. But... What they don't get is that this person is also actively working against them uh, by not thinking all of, of the code through and thus leaving a mess for the entire team to work with. He does not like consider the, the future of, of the game or the software that's being developed. And this is pretty cool, right? <laughs> if you have worked in IT or the game industry for some time, you probably know someone you can descri- describe as being the tactical tornado but I don't really agree with John on this one. Although I do recognize this personality trait in some people, I also know people who get things done very quickly, deliver on time, might even cut some corners here and there, but still deliver good quality software that stands the test of time. This comes with experience, trust me. And as I have talked about in a previous episode, sometimes you might do things very technically oriented just to make a deadline and after its delivery you dive back into the code to fix things this is most certainly not optimal but it is realistic this will happen sometimes and yeah it sucks because you need to touch the code multiple times and thus it's more work and more potential to introduce bugs but Let's continue this chapter with the section about the other end of the spectrum, strategic programming. This is oriented towards the fact that working code is not enough. It's unacceptable to introduce complexities in order to finish a task, and the most important thing about the system is its long-term structure. Strategic programming requires an investment mindset. Instead of getting things done quickly, you think a problem through tactically, but solve it in the cleanest way possible for the long-term. And he says that some investments you make will be proactive. So it's okay to spend just a little bit of time designing code and maybe draw some UML diagrams, for example. And he also makes a very nice comment here, and that is to always design a solution twice at minimal, maybe three times or four times but twice as minimal. This allows you to find trade-offs in the designs you made, and then you choose the best one, or the combination of them, and to take the best of both worlds. I think this is a very good idea, and I also think that pair programming has a place here as well. If you pair with someone on a difficult problem, then you can solve it together, and most likely, you will have some opposing opinions about things, and thus, you need to discuss them, This is great for developing a system and sharing knowledge about it. You can also teach each other some tricks when pairing, so don't see this time as wasted time. And other investments might be reactive. And John says, no matter how much time you invest uh, upfront, there will inevitably be mistakes in your design decisions. And over time, these decisions will become more obvious. And he's totally right. Just because you design a system very nicely doesn't mean it doesn't need to evolve. So a system that was clean last week doesn't have to be clean anymore today because the requirements have drastically changed. And sometimes you cannot anticipate that. So you must be reactive and adapt the system back towards a more clean state. We talked about this in the Clean Code podcast as well. We talked about the concept that Uncle Bob calls emergence, that a small system grows into a larger system. It emerges. And during this process, the design will change here and there, and thus you must adapt it strategically, not tactically. A nice way to do this is to follow Uncle Bob's Boy Scout rule, which says leave the campground cleaner than you found it. And what it means is that you always check the code in cleaner than you checked it out. And thus the quality will only ever increase. And that's a wrap for chapter three already. So let's continue with chapter four. And it's called Modules Should Be Deep. And John says that one of the most important techniques for managing software is modular design. It allows engineers to manage complexity by only uh, focusing on a small fraction of it. The goal of modular design is to decompose a system into a collection of relatively independent modules. And a module in a C-sharp or object-oriented sense could be as small as a class, but also components or services are like entire uh, subsystems. The goal of such modules is that programmers or engineers can work with these independently of other modules and thus do not have to know about these other modules or care about them while developing them, that is. This way, you're able to manage complexity of your game development or software engineering overall. There will, however, be some dependencies between those modules, yet they will be abstracted out and you as a developer do not need to worry about those that much. And he then continues with the bold observation that a module consists of two parts, an interface, so an API to talk to, and an implementation, which is hidden behind the interface. This is what Uncle Bob talks a lot about as well, he always wants to to make nice interfaces and hide implementation details by proper encapsulation. And as a consumer of a module, you are often not interested in the internals. The interface describes what the module does, not how it does it. This is a nice way of hiding the complexity of things. And then John also describes two other interesting elements of an interface. There are formal and informal parts of an interface where the formal part of the interface relates to to a specific API, or like the function signatures, these specify names, types, and parameters, and return times, and maybe even information uh, about exceptions. These are what I would call the obvious parts of an interface. But there are also the informal elements of an interface, which I would call the hidden properties or in programming terms, functions with side effects. He says that there are some elements that are not specified in a way that are understood or enforced by programming languages. These functions uh, often target high level behavior. Uh, And the example he gives in the book is a function called delete file, which would delete an actual file from the file system. This is a side effect which will impact subsequent calls to this function. But there are uh, also other kinds of side effects, like when functions need to be called in order. And I think we have probably ran into the issue in our careers uh, like once before. I bet that at some point uh, you fixed the bug by just changing the order of function calls. Sometimes it can be really difficult to express these things uh, in an interface and you might need some knowledge of the domain you are working in and in, in order to understand how the interface is supposed to work. For example, in your game you might not be able to like, enter the, the character creation screen or any other co- part of the game before you have confirmed your email address. This is pretty hard to express merely by an API. You need some kind like, doc- of documentation for this, right? And I think he made some really nice observation as well here. So the fact that the informal or unknown aspects of an interface are important to communicate somehow is very, very cool. After reading this again, I'm definitely going to try and communicate these things in a better way. And I'm not entirely sure how to do this properly, but in like a use case driven approach, it would be fairly easy to express this, I think. If we go back to the previous example, where the user needs to confirm his email before he can enter uh, the character creation screen, we would embed this logic into the account registration use case. Only after the registration use case is fully done and the email is confirmed, will the user be able to continue uh, to actual in-game content. He might, of course, in the meantime, access like the menus and stuff, but no actual content. And this would be easy to restart when uh, the user closes the game. When he comes back, check his status, and if it's not confirmed, uh, if he has not confirmed his email, Run the confirmation use case again. Note that uh, that these use case objects embed the informal elements of an interface now. And John then continues with an interesting definition uh, of abstraction. And he says, an abstraction is a simplified view of an entity which omits unimportant details. Notice how he specifically says unimportant details. This is really nice and practical information, right? How often have you as a developer been bothered with unimportant details of some interface? I know I have, but I'm, I'm unable to come up with a decent abzo- example from the top of my, my my head. And if I find one, I'll let you know and like put it in the show notes. And he also highlights the fact that unimportant is crucial in his definition of abstraction. He says that abstraction can go wrong in two ways. One, it can include details that are not really important. When this happens, the abstraction is overcomplicated, which increases the cognitive load on a developer. And two, when an abstraction tells you not enough about it. So the abstraction creates obscurity and developers uh, looking at the abstraction will not have the information they need to use it correctly. And the perfect example I know of this is the WWW routines in uh, Unity 3D. These are supposed to be HTTP requests, but you can abuse them for a request to the file system as well, because they work on URIs, right? And as a matter of fact, you are required to use them when you need to get assets from the Streaming Assets folder on mobile because they are compiled into binaries for optimization and distribution purposes. So you can use these multimedia requests for multiple use cases, which makes them flexible or versatile, but also confusing when you are starting out with Unity 3D. And John says that the key to designing abstractions is to understand what is important and to look for designs that minimize the amount of information. He then goes on to describe on what I think are one of the most important concepts in this book, and that is the notion of deep and shallow modules. He starts off by describing deep modules, and John describes such models that provide a nice concise interface but do some really heavy lifting under the hood. And he also puts a really nice visualization of deep and shallow modules in the book where the deep module is very narrow but well deep and the shallow module is very wide yet shallow. These boxes also have their interface visualized by some tiny little top header which in the deep module is very narrow, yet in the shadow module is very wide. And thus the shadow module provides a relatively large interface compared to the functionality it provides. The deep module, on the other hand, provides a relatively small interface compared to the functionality, the heavy lifting it provides. If this does not make sense, go check that YouTube video uh, referred to uh, like earlier. Uh, these visuals are in there as well, and next is something I really wanted to put in this episode, and that is John's all time favorite interface. I just could not leave it out because he speaks so passionate about this in any of his talks, and that is the i o uh, like the file i o mechanism uh, provided by the UNix operating system and it only has like five functions: open, read write, seek, and close. But this interface does a lot of heavy lifting for you, like how files are pre- represented on disk, how are directories stored, and what paths do they refer to? How are permissions enforced? How can file accesses be implemented, like uh, like interrupt handlers? And how are scheduling policies implemented to allow for concurrent access? and how our cache is implemented to reduce overhead when accessing files uh, multiple times, and how our secondary storage devices linked to ex- like, like external devices and flash drives uh, incorporated into a single file system. And the list goes on and on. And I definitely encourage you to check him, check him explain it himself because you can see how passionate he is about this stuff. It's really cool. So this interface providing only these five functions is very very deep it's a simple and easy to understand interface yet it provides you with all the functionality this is the very best description of a deep module so then let's have a look at what he calls shallow modules and these are modules whose interface is relatively complex in comparison to the functionality that they provide. He gives an example about how a class that implements a, a linked list is shallow, since it does not take much code to manipulate a linked list like inserting or deleting elements. It takes only a few lines. So a linked list abstraction does not hide much of the details. And he also raises his first red flag in the book, which is to look out for shallow modules. And that's because shallow modules do just not provide enough functionality to justify their existence. It might be even that you need to spend more time learning its interface before you can use them. And well, I heavily disagree with him on this one. And although some modules are very, very shallow, does not mean you should remove them. He gave the perfect example himself, right? Would you really remove the linked list class from the language just because it's shallow? Like I wouldn't, it's a very nice utility to have. And I can give you some more examples. And a very simple one uh, would be like in C sharp, we have this function called like string.isnull or whitespace. This is very, very shallow, yet it is very useful. Are you really going to write like string is null or or string is this string.empty? Really? Or maybe another example the try get value function on a dictionary. It's really shallow. You can really easily write it yourself, but don't you like this utility? So when you create functions for this, you can also cover it with unit tests. So to make sure they work properly, so cover a specific like shallow function with some tests to make sure the function works, uh, works every single time. Instead of writing the same uh, unit test for everything where you inlined this exact same functionality. And then another reason why I heavily disagree. And that is uh, that comes from the clean code book directly. And that is that functions serve as documentation. So a function called isNullOrWhitespace documents what the line is doing. This is polite, remember? When you read this, you don't need to figure out whatever optical illusion, like conditional logic is behind it. But, okay, uh, he is right that many shallow modules are simply badly designed objects with complicated interfaces. But there's a difference between them. Useful utility functions and objects that serve as a remedy against complexity through abstraction and documentation and simply a badly designed class. But take this advice with a grain of salt and remember there are often trade-offs or nuances. But let's continue. Um, I think I rented long enough now, right? And. he then continues with a concept he calls classitis, which happens when people break things up in far too many little classes than is actually needed. He says that it comes from the advice that classes should be small, and functions too. So they should be divided into multiple classes and multiple functions. And then he makes the perfect observation here, and he says that uh, this stems from the view that classes are good, so more classes are better. And thus, all these classes contribute to the complexity of your game system overall. And this really contradicts the advice in clean code, right? Well, to be honest, I'm not so sure. The feeling I got when I read this part is that some people follow the classes are good, so more is better religion too heavily. They misunderstand the single responsibility principle and abstract far too much than is actually needed to comply with the SRP. They naively implement the SRP in their systems and thus complexity accumulates, but the SRP is pretty straightforward. Extract things out that answer to a different stakeholder and the stakeholder can be many things like a web service or a database or some other system in your game. When you separate them, you are less dependent on them and thus take less risk when something needs to change. But he also gives an example of this and that is like the Java file stream API. And I think he has a point here, right? This is a horrible API. And it, <laughs> it seems to me that the SRP has not been implemented properly here. Any example he explains how he can create file streams. But if you want to make it a buffered file stream, you must feed that file stream into a buffered stream. And if you want to make uh, like a access a read and write access, you should feed uh, that again into an object stream. But this is the common use case. So it should be default. Like the object stream is the default one. But he has a point here. But my comment would be, this is where so-called shallow modules could help you with some very Simple extension functions. And on the other hand, I think it is also just the nature of the Java Stream API. Um, they built this API with a decorator pattern. And I think their design goal was to make a pluggable stream system where you can hook different things, of st- like different kinds of streams together to create like a pipeline. But he's right, it's a horrible API. And since object streams are often the one you need, they should be the default one. And yeah, that's a wrap again for another chapter. And yeah, it was really nice and contained some really valuable information. There are some contradictions with clean code in here, which I tried to explain. And yeah, I gave you my opinion on them. Um, let me know what you think about this. And I'm pretty curious about that. So how do you feel about shallow versus uh, like deep modules? And how do you think the single responsibility plays a role in this? Let me know and um, i see we have some time left so let's quickly continue with another chapter chapter 5 information hiding and leakage and john says that this is the most important things deep modules do they provide a small interface uh, to hide a lot of their complexity he said he got this idea from david parnas and the basic idea is that each module should encapsulate a few pieces of knowledge, which represent design decisions. The knowledge is embedded in the module's implementation, but does not appear in its interface, so it's not visible to other modules. This sounds like true OO design, doesn't it? Like hidden information can include many things like data structures or algorithms related to the mechanism it provides. I It can also include low-level details like interactions with the file system or higher-level concepts. John says that information hiding battles complexity in two ways. It will simplify the interface to a module, since you will not and do not want to expose the inner details to the outside, and second, information hiding uh, increases the ease, of evolving the system since all of this logic is local to the specific module. It's encapsulated, hidden from the outside, and thus there cannot be dependencies on the inner workings. This makes it easy to evolve the system because it's isolated. And he also rightly notes that information hiding is not simply making things public. He says that information hiding goes a step further than that. Private variables and properties can still be exposed to the outside by getters and setters, for example. But information hiding goes deeper in the sense that you you simply want to hide everything local to that module. Like for example, if you have some persistence or data access layer in your game, you don't want to expose what database you are using. I mean, it could be implemented with like simple JSON files uh, on the file system, or maybe like an SQLite database. Or maybe Mongo like some No SQL stuff. I don't care about I would care about those details when I asked uh, for an object. This information should be hidden and not leak to the rest of the game. And this advice nicely correlates with the advice given in clean code, right? Objects Hide implementation details and use the dependency inversion principle to hide the larger aspects of the design. And thus you are better able to manage complexities and dependencies in your game. And next up is the concept of information leakage. This is the opposite of information hiding and it occurs when a design decision is reflected into multiple modules. This creates a dependency between them and thus any change to the design decision will require changes to all of these modules. Information leakage can happen when an interface is too complex or exposes too much that should be internal. And there's another way that information leakage can occur and that's again a bit more subtle. Imagine that you need to call uh, specific functions on an interface in a specific order that's information leakage leakage or another example which john gives in the book and that is when you have some functions that read files from the disk they know about file formats if the file format changes so will you uh, so will these functions have to change and john says that information leakage is one of the most uh, important red flags in software design He says an understanding of sensitivity to information leakage is one of the best skills you can learn as a software engineer. He says a strategy to battle information leakage might to view all affected classes and extract the dependencies into a new class. This way you can remove the leakage and embed it into a single new class. And he then raises the next red flag which says Information leakage occurs when the same knowledge is used in multiple places, such as two different classes that both understand the format of a particular file. And a common cause of information leakage is a design style he calls temporal decomposition. And in temporal composition, uh, the structure of a system corresponds to the time order in which operations will occur. Hmm. Isn't like, that a cool observation? The example he provides in the book demonstrates this really nicely. He says that if you have a process that loads a file into memory, then processes it, and then writes it out to disk again, you might embed that behavior in three classes, one that reads, one that processes, and the last, which writes it out to disk. So the software design reflects the processes which is in his view is incorrect. And John says that you should combine the concepts of reading and writing into a single class since these concepts are highly related and it will get used in both the reading part and the writing part of the application. And yeah, I think he's totally right. When designing a system, such abstractions should be hidden away behind some nice interfaces. But the concept of like temporal uh, composition also highly reflects the use case driven approach I have described a couple of times in the previous episodes. The entire purpose of such design is to document each step in a use case or maybe multiple. So a use case object embeds all the steps to complete a specific feature provided by the system and use cases might be linked or put in some kind of sequence. And however, these use cases will use lower level abstractions like reading and writing to a file system. So you might say that these use case objects have information leakage and promoted temporal decomposition. But I think this is more nuanced since these use case uh, objects will hide the implementation details uh, that have to be done in order to complete it. So you might have like a login use case which takes some credentials object and an API client, and then returns an object which defines uh, whether like, the user is logged in or not. I think this is a perfectly nice abstraction. And I'm not sure uh, like John would agree with me on that. And note that this login use case might also embed smaller use cases like register user, or uh, like forgot password, or even the, the complete registration we talked about earlier. And he then raises another red flag, which says, in temporal coupling, execution order is reflected in the code structure. Operations that happen at different times are in different methods or classes. If the same knowledge is used at different points in execution, it gets encoded into multiple places, resulting into information leakage. And then he finishes this chapter uh, with some examples of information hiding. Um, so if you want to check them out, uh, go ahead and uh, check the book. Uh, they're really nice. But yeah, that's it for this episode, I suppose. We're coming close to the 45-minute mark, and I think I've been rambling long enough. We have many chapters to go, uh, which we will discuss in upcoming episodes. And as I said in the beginning of this podcast, I can't uh, like discuss the alternatives to clean code without diving into them properly it won't do justice to the quality of the content that's presented in here. So I think we need like a couple of more episodes about this book, A A Philosophy of Software Design by John R. Austerhout. And then we will continue our discussion with yet more books, The Pragmatic Programmer and Code Complete. And I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something. I certainly did by refreshing all of these awesome things like Tactical versus strategic programming, deep versus shallow uh, shallow modules, and information hiding and leakage. And um, in the next episode, we will uh, discuss the remainder of the book. And yeah, we'll see how far we get. So thank you for listening, and I hope you join me on the, the next time as well. And oh, um, please leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Currently, you can listen to this podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Podbean. It's greatly appreciated if you leave me a review or maybe some comments. Um, Thank you again and till next time. And as always, remember, with Unity, we can do great things. Game over.